So to protect my friend, I'm going to call him Clive. Yeah, I'm going to call him Clive. He wouldn't mind me sharing the story, but I'm just going to call him Clive. Can everyone hear me? Is that okay? Can everyone hear me? Okay, guys at the back, can you hear me? Okay, yeah. So this story is about my friend Clive. So when I was a student, um, I basically, so I went to University of Leicester. Yeah. Woo! Yeah. So I went to University of Leicester, and um, I remember there was literally no one else on campus except my friend Clive. And I saw Clive, and I literally shouted his name. I was like, Clive, Clive. And he literally did this. And he was like, God? <laughs> and I was like, no, Clive, over here, over here. And then he looked to his right, and I was like, Wale? <laughs> and he said, no exaggeration. If you said, Clive, kneel down, I would have knelt down on campus. And um, I was literally just laughing so much. But what I loved so much about him is that he really carried a great reverence for the Lord. And he even carried an expectation that the Lord might actually speak to him like in an audible voice, which was so amazing. Um, up to the point that even on a campus, he was like, if I heard this voice tell me like kneel down, I would have knelt down on campus. And I just think that's really amazing because sometimes even um, some of us who call ourselves Christians, sometimes we can become too familiar with God. And we can even become too familiar with his voice and with his convictions. And that's something I want to talk to us about today. So we're starting a new series called Holy. And we're talking about holiness in particular, the holiness of God and also how God interacts, how a holy God interacts with his people. So I would like us to turn to Exodus chapter 3. When you're there, say, I've got you. Okay, 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 awesome. Okay, so let's turn, um, so verse one. So it says, now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horem, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire with a bush. Moses saw that, the, that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight. Why is it that the bush does not burn up? When the, Lord, when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals from where you are standing. This is holy ground. Then he said, I am your God. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this time, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Amen. And something that I find so crazy um, about this story is that the Bible actually talks. God said that this is holy ground. And bear in mind, this was a land um, that was used for far farmland and used for farming. And I can just imagine there must have been like sheep dung everywhere. This was probably a land where um, so many travelers had stepped on and perhaps bought all sorts of things and have really trod on that land. But that land was called holy. 
And the only distinguishing factor about that particular land, the reason why it was called holy is because God was present. And I really feel like that's just a great illustration of what it's like for a, perhaps a person, a normal person, when God enters into their life. Perhaps if I can be as crude to say that particular illustration of the dirt and perhaps even sheep dung, you know, how life really gets at us. When God enters our life, we are considered holy. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, you know, the Bible talks about, oh, we'll look at it later, but it calls us blameless. We are considered holy by a holy God. And um, there's something that the Israelites used to do. So essentially before Jesus Christ, before um, before Jesus Christ coming um, coming on earth, it basically talked about that for the Israelites um, in the Old Testament, it talks of something called the Ark of God. And the Ark of God was basically this symbol. If we could have the picture on the screen, actually, if it's there. that amazing so the ark of god was um a symbol that basically meant that god is dwelling in this place so the israelites this used to be in their region and it was basically a symbol that said god is present and god is with us and once a year the high priest will basically enter um the place where the ark of god used to reside and used to be called the holy of holies and once a year the high priest will basically pay um, will offer up a sacrifice for everyone's sins in their region to be forgiven. And this Ark of God, I will just read it out, it was made out of Arcadio wood. The Ark was covered inside and out with pure gold and measured two and a half cubits long, but a cubit and a, um, a cubit and half a wide by a cubit. And it was almost four uh, feet with golden rings through which wooden poles and also with gold and were inserted for carrying the ark. Special care was taken on the lid, solid gold with two hammered gold and angels facing each other with their wings overshadowing the lid. And God told Moses to place the tablets of the Ten Commandments inside the ark and later on a pot of manna and Aaron's staff was added as well. So just imagine, for the people of Israel to be forgiven, they had to go through this process that we're about to read on. So let's go um, to First Corinthians, um, Chronicles chapter 13. And when you're there, say, I've got you again, please. I'm an extrovert, so you have to speak to me. Oh, I feel insecure. <laughs> I can't wait a bit. Amazing. Verse 1. So it says, David conferred with each other of his officers, the commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. He said to the whole assembly of Israel, if it seems good to you, and if it is the will of the Lord our God, let us send our word far and wide to the rest of our people throughout the territories of Israel, and also to the priests and Levites who were with them, and in the towns and pastures lands to come and join with us. Let us bring the ark of our God back to us, and for we did not inquire of it during the reign of Saul. The whole assembly agreed to do this because it seemed right to 
for the people. So I'm going to pause there. So essentially, King David, he wanted to bring the ark of God back into Israel because it was such a great symbol of God's presence is actually with us. And later on in this um, extract, it talks about a guy called um, Obed-Edom, who basically had the ark of God in his household for a few months. And the Bible talks about how he was really blessed and how there was so much favor over his household. So let's go back to verse 5. So yeah, David wanted this back into his region. And it says, David assembled all, all Israel from Sihar River in Egypt to Lebo Habath to bring the Ark of God from Kariath, hey, whatever that word is. <laughs> anyway, KJ. <laughs> David and all Israel went to Baalah of Judah, mm -hmm, that word, KJ to bring up from there the ark of God, the Lord, who is enthroned between the cherubim, hmm? the ark that is called by the name. They moved the ark of God from Abinadab's house on a new cart with, um, with Uzzah and Aho guiding it. David and all the Israelites were celebrating all their might before God with songs, with harps, lyres, timbrels, cymbals, and trumpets. When they came to the threshing floor of Kidon, Yuzah reached out his hand to steady the ark because the oxen stumbled. Then the Lord angered burned against Uzah and he struck him down because he had put his hand on the ark. So he died before God. So this is quite a dramatic story. So essentially what happened is that the Ark of God was making its way back to Israel and everyone was happy, everyone was celebrating. They were like, yes, great, this is amazing. You know, they were really just celebrating the fact that this symbol, that this thing that basically says that the presence of God and the favor of God is coming back to our region, they were so happy about it. And as a result, what happened is that Uzzah um, saw that some of the oxen of where the um, Ark of God was, the Ark of God was essentially was on a cart and this cart was maneuvered by some oxen. And um, Uzzah essentially saw one of the ox um, stumble, so he did any logical thing that perhaps some of us would have done. He quickly tried to reach out to catch the Ark of God to make it steady. But the Bible talks about how by him reaching out and touching the Ark of God, he, he fell dead, that the Lord striked him. And this might seem um, a bit crazy and a bit dramatic, but I believe that the reason that Uzzah died and the reason why he was killed is because the Lord gave him clear instructions on how to actually carry out the Ark of God. And this was clear in Exodus especially, where it says the Ark of God was equipped with poles to be carried on the shoulders of the Levitical priests because it was holy. And the Lord told them in Numbers chapter 4, verse 15, that they should not touch any holy thing or they will die. And David or Uzzah perhaps accidentally or intentionally disregarded these instructions. They acted on their own will and understanding when it came to God. And some commentators even said that if the Lord had perhaps compromised on their judgment or overlooked this, it meant that perhaps when um, future generations saw the ark of God or perhaps when it came to the presence of God that they wouldn't have taken it seriously they would have just think okay perhaps this is not as holy as you know as God has truly said and 
And that's why one commentator even said this. He says, the sad story of Yusuf's fatal attempt to study the ark of God is a painful lesson underscoring the necessity of doing what is right in God's eyes, not our own eyes. The tendency to do what seems good in our eyes is at the heart of human rebellion against the authority of God. Similar to this, today too often the standard of determining what is good is approached from the vantage point of our own personal opinion what is right in our own eyes, rather than through the biblical, rather through the lens of biblical principles. Yet at this incident with Uzas shows what is right in our own eyes is irrelevant and often it's very distracting. And the, in Proverbs it says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. And if I'm being um, honest, um, sometimes, um, as I was actually reading this extra, I was just pondering on my own life. I was just thinking of times when I've actually heard the Lord's conviction on some certain things, and I've actually said, oh God, don't worry about it. Like, mm, maybe um, I will obey you tomorrow. Maybe I will not do that particular thing another day. Or perhaps um, I've actually quenched, you know, the spirit of God because of fear. I haven't been obedient in actually fulfilling what God has wanted me to do because of fear. And I feel like this incident, you know, the Bible talks about how God is love and how God is rich in mercy. So I'm not saying that, oh, he's it's a person that's going to strike us down. But I really believe that this incident is really just um, vital to just show that sometimes we actually feel like we know more than God. And sometimes we do not treat um, his voice um, with respect. And sometimes we even take it for granted. And I just want to petition today and just to urge us to just hear the Lord afresh. And when he does speak, for us to not just treat it as something that's a shrug of a shoulder, but to actually treat it with so much reverence because it is the God of all that is speaking to us. Amen. So David made amends. And in First Chronicles chapter 15, it says, no man shall carry the ark of God but the Levites, for God has chosen them to carry the ark of God and to minister before him forever. And um, if you could put the picture of the temple of God. Yeah, so I'm going to give, um, just paint a picture of what some people actually had to go through in order to actually receive forgiveness for their sins. So the altar at the beginning was where the animal sacrifices had to happen. So essentially, the Bible talks about how the wages of sin is death. So when we sin, the consequence is actually death. But what actually happened is that the Lord in the Old Testament, he said that take an animal, take it and sacrifice that lamb. And that will essentially, symbolically, would take those consequences. And this is called atonement. So the animal sacrifices used to happen right there in the, in red, region, in the red region. And then it goes to the laver where essentially they would dust the dirt um, of the day and wash it away in preparation to enter the presence of God. And then it went into the holy place. And the golden lamp, um, which is that um, shiny thing in the middle, um, illuminated the things and the inspiration of God. And the table of bread, which is the opposite thing, you know, the two orange circles, it essentially, it was a symbolic um, figure that showed God's nourishment and sustenance. 
And the next thing was incense. And it was basically a sweet fragrance that went up to the Lord. And this is a picture of worship. And the very ark of God in the holies of holies was where God's immediate presence rested. And once a year, you know, the high priest would enter the holies of holies and God will make a decision on whether he forgives the sins of all the Israelites. And as we can see, we don't have to go through all of that in order to obtain God's mercy and his forgiveness. And the reason that we don't have to go through all of that is because Jesus Christ has paid everything for us. Jesus Christ died on the cross for us. And the Bible essentially says that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but shall have eternal life. And just imagine if we actually had to complete all these different sacrificial rituals or appoint a certain mediator to experience the forgiveness and reconciliation with God. But we don't have to do that. All we have to do is to put our faith in Jesus, where Jesus actually says, I am the truth, I am the way. If anyone is looking for rest of their soul, if anyone's looking for forgiveness, come to me. And in the Old Testament, essentially what used to happen is if anyone was unclean, so for example, let's say if there was a dead body or perhaps um, some certain human fluids or perhaps even certain types of meat and, um, or even someone who had leprosy or even diseased skin, the Old Testament basically used to highlight that if you touch those things, if you touch the dead body or if you acquainted yourself with someone who was sick or perhaps had diseased skin, then you too would become unclean. You too will become impure. But Jesus basically switched that around. Where Jesus, who was completely healed, who was completely pure, who was completely sinless, he made dirty people whole. He made dirty people pure. And for example, I love the extract and when it actually talks about the leper, where Jesus actually touched the leper. And that person, what the leper was healed and the leper was completely transformed and his deceased skin had left him. And you know, in times of nowadays with the coronavirus, how many of us, if let's say if your friend sitting next to you said, I have the coronavirus, how many of us will hug our friend and be like, oh, it's okay. What would you do? You would run away. You'd be like, you know, our friendship ends here. But that's what we'll do. Honestly, that's, that's what we'll do. <laughs> Amen? But that's what would happen. But imagine Jesus. Like, leprosy is far more worse than this coronavirus. And honestly, it's, it's, I, I really do feel um, just so disheartened by um, perhaps, you know, what's happening in the world, especially with all of this. But leprosy was so, was, was so much worse. But Jesus actually equated himself with a leper. He touched a leper, and that leper was healed. And that's the principle of the kingdom of God, that Jesus touches us, and we are made whole. Jesus touches us, and we are made pure. Jesus touches us, and we are healed. Amen. And another thing that I love just, just about the narrative of Jesus is that Jesus said, and he promised all of his disciples, he promised all of those who believe in him, that if you believe in me, that I will send a helper, I will send a guide, I will send a comforter, I will send God's spirit. And when we believe in Jesus, God's spirit resides in us, his Holy Spirit resides in us. And what's crazy, if we go back to the picture of um, the holies of holies, 
So imagine this was the temple of God. So we go back to the picture of the holiest of holies. So if we look at this particular region, the holiest of holies, this is where the spirit of God, the presence of God would reside. But the Bible now teaches us, if we say yes to Jesus, the spirit of God resides inside of us. So essentially, we are the new temple. That's what the Bible says. We are the temple of God. Amen. And I want us to um, quickly just read another extract that talks about the temple of God. Ezekiel chapter 47. When you're there, say, I've got you. Amazing. Okay, so it says, first one, so Ezekiel received a vision. So the man brought me back temple towards the east, for the temple faced east. The water was coming down from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar. He then brought me out through the north gate and led me around outside to the gate, facing east. And the water was trickling from the south side. As the man went eastward with a measuring line in his hand, he measured off a thousand cubits and led me through water that was ankle deep. He measured off another thousand cubits and led me through water that was knee deep. He measured off another thousand and led me through water that was waist that was up to the waist. He measured all of the thousand, but now it was a river I could not cross. But the water had risen and was deep enough to me, was deep enough to me, um, was deep enough to swim in. A river that, that, no, that no one could cross, he asked me. Son of man, do you see this? Then he led me back to the river, to the bank of the river. When I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. He said to me, this water flows through the eastern region and goes down to Arabab, where it enters the Dead Sea. When it empties into the sea, the salty water there becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will, will live where, wherever the river flows. There will be large numbers of fish because this water flows through there and makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. Fishermen will stand along the shore from um, En Gedi to En... Hey, these words. <laughs> yes, E. There will be places for spreading nets. The fish will be many kinds, like the fish of the Mediterranean Sea. But the swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They'll be left for salt. Yes, sir. I'm... Yeah, okay, let's continue. Fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the rivers. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fell. Every mouth they will bear fruit. Every month they will bear fruit, because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food and their leaves for healing. So this is such a great picture of the temple of God. Essentially what happened is that the temple of God, there was a stream flowing down from the temple of God. And this stream became bigger and bigger and it became a river. And it basically um, rushed down into the desert and into the Dead Sea. 
into dead places. So I'm losing my voice. <laughs> into dead places. And as a result, because that river went into dead places, life started sprouting out. Trees started sprouting out. There was fishes that started um, coming alive. There was um, creatures in the sea started coming alive. And different people could um, find healing and fulfillment just because the sea and the river was flushing through. And how many of us have actually considered that that's a picture of who we are today? That when we say yes to Jesus, the Bible talks about his Holy Spirit resides in us and we are the temple of God. How many of us actually see ourselves as vessels of healing? And there was a great nun called Teresa who essentially said, and I've shared it before, but you are the hands or feet of Jesus. Jesus has no body on earth but yours. And as my youth pastor used to say to me back in the day, he used to say that you are God's plan A. There's no plan B. That by people connecting with us, I just want us to imagine in our workplaces, in our um, friendship groups, even in our campuses and, and um, different areas that we might even affiliate ourselves with. Do we actually see ourselves as actually being vessels of healings in those particular worlds? Vessels of deliverance in those particular worlds? vessels of provision and resource in those particular worlds. But that's the assignment of a believer. That is our assignment. And perhaps if we're being honest with ourselves, we're like, okay, yes, Wale, I'm a Christian, but you know what, when I enter a room, people are not more joyful. In fact, they're depressed. They're like, this, this, this Christian has come again. <laughs> and, and, um, uh, and there was someone, and there was another pastor that I heard um, earlier this week at a conference. He says, we need to be Christians that do not look like we're baptized in lemon juice. And it's, and it's true. Like sometimes we can be Christians that have the opposite effect to the world that we're actually meant to have. Sometimes perhaps we do not bring in or usher in a sense of joy or usher in a sense of deliverance. For some of us, it might actually be a sense of fear in order for us to actually step out to reach people. For some of us, it might just be a sense of indifference that we're like, I can't really be bothered. And for some of us, it might just be we're tired <laughs> and we're overwhelmed by life in itself. And this is what God says. It says in John chapter 15, verse 4, Jesus said this. He says, remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. So Jesus is essentially saying that you can't do anything without me. You can't carry out healing. You can't carry out deliverance. You can't be a resource for your family. You can't be a spiritual renewal in your community if you do not remain in me. And um, I remember um, a few years ago, and one of my friends who actually was not a Christian, he basically, I was leading a church in Leicester, and um, he saw me doing crazy hours, really, really crazy hours. And I was, you know, I was meeting this person, I was preparing for um, this particular um, sermon or lecture, and I was doing lots of different things. I was doing crazy hours. And he essentially said to me, he was like, well, I've been meaning to speak to you. And I said, oh, what's up? And he said to me that um, I'm not happy with the hours that you're doing. 
I was like, what do you mean? And he said, if you continue doing these hours and I can see how tired you are, you're not going to have anything to give. And he basically saw my life of devotion. He saw because I was constantly out, because I was constantly doing stuff for the Lord, that I didn't have my own personal devotion time with God. That wasn't at rest. If, if anything, I was more stressed and I was more anxious than before. And he says, if you do not have time of rest, you will not have anything to give. And the same thing is, if you do not, you, if you do not set time intentionally with God, if you do not remain in him, you can't produce good fruit. And um, we are called imprint. And the whole thing about imprint is God first marking, first making his mark in us and we mark our world. And that's the emphasis, God first marking us and we mark our world. Many often we actually do it the other way around where we say, okay, we'll mark our world and then God, I'm number second. <laughs> but that's not how God operates. I remember there was a time where the Lord said to me, I'm more interested in our relationship than what you can actually do for me. And that's reality. That God, yes, he loves when you actually move and when you actually do things for him. But he's more, he, he's more considerate and he's more grateful when you actually just say, Jesus, I just want to spend time with you. You know, the Bible talks about how many will say that you, I prophesied and I healed this person in your name, but I will say I, would, I did not know you. That's what the Bible says. And I just want to encourage us afresh that we won't take the holy God for granted when he pulls on our strings and says, I really want to spend time with you. When he pulls on our strings and actually tells us to do things that we will just in humility stand pause and say God what do you have to say for me and when we actually listen to him and when we take steps to actually obey him and Galatians chapter 5 verse 22 it says but the fruit of the spirit is love joy peace forbearance kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness and self-control against such things there is no law and I really just sense for some of us, um, even in this place, perhaps when we look at the fruit of the Spirit, we're thinking, yeah, I'm really lacking in that particular thing. Perhaps I'm lacking in love. Perhaps I'm lacking in joy. Perhaps I'm lacking in peace, forbearance, which is patientness, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And the Lord this evening is not rebuking you, but simply just saying, Okay, it's time for you to come back to me. It's time for you to just hear me afresh. Let go of your agendas. Let go of your schedules and spend time with me.